0: Our New Testament reading is from the book of Acts, the first chapter. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convicting proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And the Gospel reading is from the 16th chapter of John. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the, whole, the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying to us a little while and you will no longer see me? and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They said, what does he mean by this, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said, a little while, and you will no longer see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish, because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
1: Would you pray with me? Our God, we give you thanks for the good news of Jesus. We thank you for your scriptures, for your spirit who is with us. And we pray now that you would bless our time together. Bless our, our reading and um, pondering of your scriptures. And would you use this sermon, this time of reflection, uh, to build us up, to grow us in our faith, to grow us up in Christ-likeness, and ultimately to strengthen us to live in the world with you and like you as followers of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're beginning a new series today, uh, a series on the book of Acts, and we are going to be in the book of Acts, really all the way up until Advent, so late November. So we have, I think, 26 weeks, I believe is right, where we're going to be camped out in this book for a while. And I'm excited about that. And one of the reasons I'm excited about that is because Acts is one of my very favorite books in all of Scripture. It's unique because it's a long narrative uh, in the New Testament that uh, isn't one of the Gospels, right? It's, it's the second volume of Luke's Gospel, if you will, where the, the Gospel writer Luke uh, intentionally wrote uh, Volume A and Volume B, of his telling of the story of Jesus, where volume A, the Gospel of Luke, is really about the earthly life and ministry of Jesus that leads up to his death and resurrection. And then, and then that 24th chapter of Luke that we've been reading over the last weeks tells the story of Jesus' resurrection and the events immediately following it. Uh, we've, we've done the, uh, the slow trek through that chapter in recent weeks. But then Luke's next volume, this book of Acts, tells the story that moves forward from there. So what happens when Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears and begins to walk again on the face of the earth and talk with his disciples? And then what happens when these disciples see him go away, ascend into heaven, and essentially uh, they wait for what's next, and then they see the Spirit poured out upon them, and you see them sent in Jesus' name to go as witnesses to the ends of the earth. And the story of the book of Acts is really the story of the church becoming the church. It's the, this little band of disciples being fully empowered with the very life of God, the Spirit, and sent with the commission of Jesus to go out into all of the world, to bear witness to him, to bear witness to his kingdom, and ultimately to participate with God in the beginnings of this movement of the renewing of all things. It's a wild story. It's a beautiful story. Uh, there are painful moments, there are super weird moments. Uh, it's a thrilling read, and I'm excited to be able to do it together over th- these next months. And so we begin today just with these first five verses of this book, uh, and I just want to begin our series by sort of stepping back and maybe thinking about what this book in general is to be for us, and then we can get into the, the content of these few short verses. But You know, we've been talking a lot about renewal in the church over the last year or so, and sometimes we talk about it in terms of looking out there in the world and recognizing that a lot has changed in recent years. Uh, And the place of the church in the world has changed a lot in recent years. You know, if you go back in time about 70 years in this country, uh, you know, the church was a relatively respected institution, and about two-thirds of people would have experienced positively an invitation to come to like a church potluck or something like that. If you were just to invite your neighbor to church, you know, about two-thirds of people would have thought, oh, that's nice. And maybe they'd come, maybe they wouldn't, but, but it would have been a generally positive, hospitable invitation. Fast forward to the 1980s. That number has shrunk from about two-thirds to about one-third where you know there's a growing resistance to the church as an institution uh, for lots of reasons, right? I mean, you know, increased disillusionment after the world wars as people have seen human atrocities in ways that have made them question the possibility of a good God, the existence of a good God in the face of such suffering and human evil. And also there's been just real hypocrisy in the church exposed, abuses by church leaders and just real Painous acts and real things that begin to diminish the credibility of the church as an institution. And of course, we have more of those stories from more recent history as well. So by the time you get to the 1980s, it's about one third of people in this country would experience positively an invitation to come and maybe participate in something that's happening. Fast forward to 2019, just before the pandemic, the last time where we have kind of real good data on this stuff. And that number has shrunk from the two-thirds that it was in the 1950s to the one-third that it was in the 1980s, now down to about seven or 8% of people in 2019 who would experience positively your invitation to come along and come to a church event, a picnic, potluck, nothing fancy, right? But just some sort of hospitable event, a place to share food and conversation. Which means about 93% of people would experience such an invitation negatively as some sort of like manipulative act of like, you're trying to get me to buy something or you're trying to get me to convert or you're trying to get me to join your club or something. It feels manipulative, it feels coercive, it feels imperialistic to 93% of people by 2019. That number's, I don't know if it's increased or decreased. I don't know what the COVID effect is, but, um, but where we are today is certainly a very different place than where the church was when many of us were children or when your parents were children or when your grandparents were participating in the church if they did. And so sometimes we talk about the need for renewal in the church by looking out there at the world and saying, okay, the, the world needs the church to be renewed in its own apostolic charter and vision because the world doesn't want to come in here to listen to what I have to say or to what you have to say. They don't want to come in here because they don't don't sense a hunger for what it is that we offer. But sometimes we talk about the need for renewal from within. It's not looking out there at what the world needs, a church that's renewed that can show up helpfully in the world among those who aren't looking for God or looking for church or aren't thinking about their lives in that way. But sometimes we talk about it from within, of recognizing that when we ourselves have allowed just our, our life of faith really to be defined by, I come to a thing at church. This is what I do. I, I attend. I come. Maybe I participate in this or that activity. That is not the depth and fullness of the vision that we get in the New Testament for the life of the body of Christ right? And that's kind of the spirit behind the resurrection rhythms that we've launched in this Easter season is recognizing, hey, we long for more in our life with God. We long for more in our life of discipleship. We want to become more those people that we long to be living this beautiful and compelling life the way Jesus did. And we can recognize that that life of discipleship has a worship dimension to it and has a community dimension to it and has a mission dimension to it. God calls us to love God, to pray, right? To be connected and communing with God, to be experiencing divine life in worship. God also calls the church to be a unique kind of family and this one-anothering work of the community of faith. We're called to love one another and to be engaged in life together in the community of the body of Christ in a way that is replenishing to us and beautiful to anyone who would observe it. So there's this community aspect. But then the mission aspect is also so vital because God is up to something in the world. God is the one who is up to the business of making all things new, of restoring to health and wholeness an entire, an entire world and an entire humanity that has fallen under the iron fist of human selfishness and greed and violence and hatred, loneliness. God is in the business of uniting all things in Christ and in him making all things new. God is a God on a mission, and so to get connected to this God and to follow Jesus into the world will inevitably to fo- to be to follow him not into just some Christian bubble that insulates us from the things that we find to be maybe threatening or challenging or scary, but it will be to follow him into that world to be a blessing, To be neighbors who show up well in the lives of our neighbors, to be co-workers who show up well in the workplace and with our co-workers who live beautifully on this life of mission with God, making all things new. The renewal that we long for, the renewal in the church that the world needs in order to experience the blessing of God through us, it's all the same thing. It is all the spiritual rejuvenation, renewal, recalibration that happens when we reconnect our lives to Jesus, when we participate more fully in the life of the Holy Spirit and give ourselves open-heartedly and open-handedly to whatever it is that God would do in, with, and through us. In other words, it is to get reconnected as a people to the apostolic charter of the church that Jesus gave that original group of disciples at this moment when he's been raised from the dead and he calls them to gather and he says, stay and wait right here. Wait for the promise of the Father and then go when you get it. We join the story of this early band of disciples here at the beginning of the book of Acts at this time because we recognize that we need what they needed. We also have what they had, both in terms of the gift and in terms of the calling. And so if we want to be renewed in our calling, if we want to be renewed in our life together in Christ and in the Spirit, if we want to be renewed in our sense of purpose and mission, that we're up to something good together, we're getting involved with God and the good work God is doing in the world. I think one of the best ways for us to do it is to open the book of Acts and make our way through it slowly. And then as we do it, to open our lives to God and ask God to draw us into the story of what he's doing in the world, which is the same story that he was up to then and is up to now. So we turn to the book of Acts, volume two of this Gospel of Luke, who picks up with the risen Jesus and basically launches us into this world along with them, a world where Jesus has called his disciples to be his body. And it's a world that is really complicated. And we shouldn't miss the complication of the situation in the book of Acts. One of my favorite commentators and public theologians is Willie James Jennings, who writes this about the book of Acts. He says, it is keenly aware of suffering and those who cause it. And it, the book of Acts, also sees God working toward good in the midst of pain. Life-giving historical consciousness builds from the truth that history is a creature and we are invited through the creature that is Luke Acts to allow our seeing and sensing to align with the presence of the Spirit here and now. And Jennings describes Acts as telling the story of this faith in God and in Christ that's caught in a struggle between diaspora and empire. Diaspora, the Jewish people had been forced out of their homeland by Rome. Their temple had been destroyed. They'd been scattered. And he says, we don't need to confuse that. We shouldn't confuse that diaspora with the willing mobility that we experience in our Western civilization today, where many of us live away from home. We live away from our people. We live scattered through the world, often because we've chosen to take jobs in those places. That's not the situation of the Jewish people in Acts. They've been hammered by the most powerful empire in the world and they live in fear and displacement and they live one day away, one breath away from being told that they are a dangerous other who needs to be eliminated. And so there's a struggle for survival that the Jewish people are fully engaged in and there's a fixation on securing a future for their people and a significant population among whom this story is unfolding is that population of the Jewish people who are suffering and scattered under the tyranny of Rome. But another significant population that is involved in this story and this is a really important part of the context of this episode that we'll be reading of, that's told in the book of Acts is the, is the empire itself. It's the non-Jewish people, it's the Greco-Roman people, it's the citizens of the empire, it's the people who participate in the religion of the empire, it's the people who are empowered, people who are caught up in the power and the possibility of empire or as Jennings says, this po- the power and possibilities of empire and of building a world ordered by its financial, social, and political logics that claim to be the best possible way to bring stability and lasting peace. Diaspora and empire, and Jesus shows up in that context, proclaiming the kingdom of God, neither the triumphalistic kingdom of Rome nor the despairing kingdom of Israel that is trying to figure out its sense of self, but a new thing that God has done from within Israel and in the midst of Rome by a different power. And Jennings writes this, he says, who could possibly imagine life, a good life, apart from diaspora or empire? To imagine whole life, good life, apart from diaspora or empire comes only by the Spirit of God. We must hear in the Acts story the pathos of life caught in the grip of diaspora and empire, of people angry, confused, and frustrated as the resurrected Jesus calls them to envision the new creature in the spirit, which is a mind-altering new life together. Fundamental to that new reality is the joining of Jew and Gentile. In other words, the story that's going to unfold in the book of Acts is a bringing together of a profoundly divided people, And it's bringing together profoundly divided people, not on the grounds that either group is presupposing as necessary as the grounds of their unity. But rather, Jesus is going to show up and bring together two completely unjoinable people groups. People who are impossibly divided. People who hate each other, who ruthlessly seek to eliminate the other, one from a place of power, one from a place of a lack of power. And Jesus shows up to do a new thing. And the relevance of that for our moment is hopefully obvious, because we live in a profoundly divided moment. And there are all kinds of real, real ills that are worth lamenting. There are real abuses of power that must be stopped. There are real grievances that must be heard and lamented and healed, real wounds that must be healed, individually, socially, systemically. And everybody has their own idea of what it would look like to fix the problems. Jesus shows up in a world where there are many different ideas about how to fix the problems, and he shows up with a different idea. He shows up embodying a new way a way of love, a way of making one gigantic us out of all the thems that you can imagine, and leading forth a mission in his spirit that is fundamentally a mission of embrace first and figuring out life together second. We come in as Americans or as Westerners who have this whole concept that unity is founded on agreement on issues. And that if we we disagree, then we're disunified, right? We can't be together until we can be of the same mind. Jesus flips the script and does the exact opposite and says, actually, no, we embrace one another first and then we move together. And the calling of the church is to figure it out. And that hurts. That's painful. That calls for a bearing with one another in love that calls for humility and repentance and a willingness to listen to the other, a willingness to learn how you're experienced by the other, a willingness to honor someone who disagrees with you or maybe holds a view that you find despicable, and yet Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes on earth as it is in heaven. We need more of Jesus and his vision. We need to detox off of our own partisan polarizing stuff and all of the random Kool-Aids that we drink that make us weird and toxic people. We need more of this. We need Jesus's vision, we need Jesus's spirit, we need Jesus's apostolic charter that he's given the church, and we need to be renewed in that so that we can go participate in that, that we can be open to the joy that comes through that, and so we can show up in the world as a church who comes bearing the goodness and the love and the joy that is available to all of humanity in and through Jesus and the spirit and this movement of love and reconciliation and wholeness and healing and justice and peace. It is so good what God is up to in the world. And we can get a new vision for it, not novel, but renewed, as we go back to this apostolic moment and allow the original story to shape our imagination of who we are and what we're doing here. And Jesus starts by telling the story of Israel all over again. And he says he's says walked and talked for these 40 days, telling them about the kingdom of God. In other words, he's giving them this sort of like imagination station recalibrating boot camp where he's helping them to envision what it is God is doing in contrast to all the other many visions that people might be given. And then he says, you know what? And it's important to locate yourself in the story because you need to know that you are here. Where are you in the story? You know, if you, I was talking with someone about Philadelphia the other day, um, and we were talking about meeting in a place that's halfway across the country. And when you're halfway across the country and the map that you have in mind is like a, a, a country, the country's map or, or the, a globe, the dot that covers Philadelphia covers a lot of other things too, right? So like the dot on Philadelphia might cover Chester and Cherry Hill and Villanova and Valley Forge, if you're looking at a map zoomed out, zoomed out right? But if you're looking at a city map, there's like maybe a, a significant difference between like Fairmount and Point Breeze and Southwest Philly, right? So it's just sort of like, where are you? What's covered by the dot, right? And we're zoomed in right now. And so there's distance between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. We're inside this micro space of 40 days on the map of human history, And so we're zoomed in to where we can see the distance between these things that are really in the big picture very, very close to one another in time and space. But if we zoom out and we recognize that, okay, what we're talking about is a series of events that took place in the life of Jesus in the middle of human history, we realize that the death and resurrection of Jesus and his appearing again and his sending the Spirit and his his sending out of of the disciples, all of that happened in 50 days' time on the map of human history. And there's a way of seeing that as a single dot on the map that's important for us, that we recognize that there was a great turning of the tide that happened in those 50 days, or in those three years of Jesus's ministry, however you want to zoom out, right? Or in those 30 years of Jesus's earthly life lived in the earth. It's all a dot when you look at it on the timeline of human history, when you look at it relative to where we are now. But now, as we read the story, we're zoomed way in, and we recognize we're in this precious moment in the middle of this event complex where Jesus is helping them see where they are in the story. Everything that's happened so far has been building to this, right? The whole story of Israel leading up to this moment, the ministry of John the Baptist who prepared the way, the ministry of Jesus the Messiah who spoke of and embodied and demonstrated the very presence of God's kingdom in the earth and who suffered and who died at the hands of the empire and the religious establishment, and then his appearance, now risen and alive after his suffering, it's all been moving toward this point in the story. Everything has converged upon Jerusalem where they are. This is the room where it's all happening. happening. And this will be the place from where the next chapter bursts forth. And the moment they're living in is the pause in the middle of the series of events that, taken all together, are the giant dot in the middle of human history that is the turning point and Jesus helps them understand where they are by saying stay and wait. Stay in it and wait for the promise. You can only give that which you have received and what God is about to give you is what you need and what the world needs. Wait for it. Jesus is storytelling is essential, as he re-narrates the whole story of the scriptures and the story of Israel and tells the story toward himself. But the storytelling isn't the whole thing. The Spirit, the very life of God, is what the disciples will carry into the world, and it's not going to be on the power of their ability to explain or to argue that the kingdom moves forward. It will be on the fact that they carry in themselves the very life force of God. If we're talking about football practice, you would say, you have to catch the ball first before you can run with it. Something I'm trying to teach first graders playing baseball right now (laughs) is you can't, if you don't have it, you can't run with it, right? Jesus is saying, stay and wait. You're about to receive the gift. And when you receive it, then you run with it. And so they stay and they wait. And what will come next is the, the great giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. And we'll have an opportunity to unpack over these next coming weeks the centrality of gift in the Christian life. And that's going to be really important because everything is gift. And learning to live with Jesus and learning to receive God's grace and learning to live in the presence and power of the Spirit will center for us upon receiving the gift God gives us, living in it, practicing receiving the gift. I've been reading a great book called Spirit and Sacrament by Andrew Wilson, who's the teaching pastor of King's College in London, which is where we get our Lessons in Carol's service format from. Um, But he has so many lovely things to say about gift. But one thing that he says as he's unpacking that, like, it's all about gift, right? When we talk about the life of Christ, we talk about life in the Spirit, we're talking about what we receive from God, And so much of what Jesus talked about is all hinging on this. Then comes the Spirit, Wilson writes. Jesus spoke about this gift more than any other, bursting with anticipation. Just a little while and I will come to you. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. It is to your advantage that I go away because if I don't, the helper won't come. I give you my peace. He will lead you into truth. You will receive power. You will witness to me all over the world promise, presence, power, proclamation, peace, prophecy, perseverance, Pentecost. From the moment the Spirit is poured out, accompanied by the stormy winds and fiery tongues, He's described as a gift and one on whom Christian experience centers. A gift for all who repent and get baptized, a gift money can't purchase, a gift now poured out on the Gentiles, given to guarantee our eternal inheritance given to shed abroad the love of God into our hearts, given to make us know, make us feel that we are children of God. The gifts of the Spirit may be controversial, but the gift of the Spirit is as unifying a doctrine as there is. And Wilson says there are four responses that the gift calls forth from us. Thankfulness, worship, stewardship, and pursuit. Thankfulness where we assume a posture of gratitude, shift our perspective from scarcity to abundance, a posture that pushes against envy and greed and comparison and opens us to joy that grounds us. Worship that shifts our perspectives from the good gifts to the goodness of the giver, to borrow an image from C.S. Lewis, to follow the sunbeams back to the sun, and a dynamic that keeps us from idolizing the gifts themselves. Stewardship, which is the one Jesus himself gives most attention to in his parables, where we talk about stewarding the gifts God gives because they don't belong to us. Our money, our time, our relationships, our gifts. God calls us to steward them, not to possess and rule them. He also calls us to steward our spiritual gifts and the very gospel itself and then pursue. This is maybe a little bit less intuitive to us, but Jesus actually teaches us as we give thanks for the gifts that God gives us to pursue more of them. Now, if we were to receive a generous gift from a person, we might think that then asking for more would not be an appropriate response, right? But that's because a person is someone with limited resources where if they give you more, they're limited in how they can give that forward to somebody else. But that's not God's issue. God is inexhaustible in his supply. And so to seek more of God is simply to seek more of what he has to give, seek more of what he's given us to share, seeking the future fullness that he's promised, and we recognize that we're dynamically caught up in the movement of God who does this and who teaches us to do this. We'll unpack all these things in the coming weeks, but I just want to leave us today with this vision of a renewed view of the world, right, that we live where the you are here dot for us is not the same as for these apostles. We live 2,000 years forward into the future from their moment, yet we are still organically connected to that moment, and we're still organically connected to the future hope that they anticipated. We wait as they waited. We seek the Lord as they sought the Lord. We wait for the Lord as they waited for the Lord. And it's in that posture of watching, and waiting, and seeking, and opening ourselves to receiving what God would give us, that we become renewed in God's presence and caught up afresh in his renewing movement in the world. And so my prayer for us as a church as we sit with the Book of Acts over these next weeks is that we would allow it to do its work on us, that we would open ourselves to the God who is active in its pages. And that as God renews our vision for what he's doing in the world, what the church's place is in the world, what our place is in the church, that we would get more of God, that we would become more like Christ, and that those in our lives, our neighbors, our coworkers, our families, our friends, would begin to experience in us more of the fullness of the life of God that we carry in our bodies, in our stories, a life and an activity of God to which we can bear witness as those who follow Jesus into the world. Would you pray with me? Our God, we give you thanks for every good gift and we pray now that you would remake us in the likeness of Christ to be thankful, to be worshipers of you, to be stewards of the good gifts you give, and to seek more of them as we seek more of you not that we may grasp at some prosperity or something that we want for ourselves, but that we would seek the fullness of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that we may share more abundantly of the life and the joy and the peace that you promise and that you bring. Give us that gift we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.